0: We are uh, a church built from people who follow Jesus, which seems obvious and straightforward enough, but there are actually different sorts of ways one might describe a person who follows Jesus, uh, the classic version being Christian. Uh, Today, people often favor uh, a term more like Jesus follower or follower of Jesus or Christ follower, but the New Testament actually prefers this Greek word mathetes, and mathetes is a word that your Bible typically translates as disciple, now when many hear the word disciple, they think of like Peter and Matthew and you know Andrew, James, the, the 12 young men called apostles. But Jesus had more than 12 disciples, and he continues to have more than 12 disciples now spread out all over the world, which is something that he predicted would happen. See, mathetes is translated to disciple by way of the Latin word discipulus, which means a learner, or, or more ordinary language, a student. And it is a word that describes the pupil of a teacher in the technical sense. But we think the best modern paradigm for understanding this robust term is with the English word apprentice. A mathetase is an apprentice to a master. And I find this paradigm massively helpful for two big reasons, really. The first is that in the modern Western vernacular, a Christian is not always a disciple, In America, for example, a Christian is ordinarily someone who claims intellectual belief that God exists, meaning they believe in God. If they had to describe God, maybe they would compare him to Jesus or they'd talk about the Bible. Um, And so you have massive amounts of people, celebrities, politicians, who say, I'm a Christian, and yet they are in no way ordering their lives around apprenticeship to Jesus. They are not disciples. So we ask ourselves, are we apprentices? Are we disciples of Jesus? That's one reason I love this paradigm. The second reason I love this paradigm is because it's an easier one for us to wrap our heads around, I think. I mean, uh, I love a great training montage, personally, um, whether it's Rocky Balboa and Mickey, and then, you know, years later, Adonis Creed and Rocky Balboa. You've got Daniel-san and, and Mr. Miyagi. You've got The Bride and Pai Mei. You've got Luke and Yoda, Batman and Liam Neeson, just Liam Neeson. And the, the <laughs> and in the training montage, you know, you've got this whole, like, waking up early uh, to, and running and running until your legs give out, swinging off vines in the swamps of Dagobah, doing kung fu, wax on, wax off, that whole thing. Immersing yourself in the ways of a master, day in and day out, to train and to practice And a montage, you know, we know by design is an editing technique. It's designed to facilitate brevity. The inference, though, is that it's always more than what you see on the screen. It takes days and weeks and months or years of blood and sweat and tears, and it goes on and on. And this is what we're up to at Van City Church. We are both the training montage as well as life between the edits, so to speak, the long ongoing season of wax on, wax off. Jesus is the master in this paradigm, and we are the students. So whether that's uh, you know, Rocky Balboa and Mickey, we want to be like Mickey's gym in Rocky. We want to be like the swamps of Dagobah in The Empire Strikes Back. We want to be like the League of Shadows in Batman Begins. And if you don't speak movie, don't worry. What I'm getting at is that we want to be a church that is more like <laughs> a, a dojo than it is like a weekly event. Um, we want to... Do more than just sing songs about Jesus and talk about Jesus. We want more than just easy answers and pats on the back. We want more than just cool music and good coffee. Though those things are all great, we want to actually practice the way of Jesus. We want to organize our entire lives around what we believe are the three goals of every apprentice of Jesus. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus in that process, and then to do what Jesus did. We want to encounter the living God who raised Jesus from the dead. We want to see miracles and healing and prophecy. We want to see them on a regular basis. We want to be free from the shackles of worry like Tab was just talking about. We want to be free from lust and greed and violence. So in order to achieve all those things, to uh, attain the ways of mastery, we train, we practice. Wax on, wax off, so to speak. Now, how do we do that specifically? Part of it is this. Um, The Sunday gathering, what you're at right now, worship, learning from the scriptures, which is what we're about to do, taking communion together as a family, being a family, just hanging out and enjoying one another's company. The other big part is what we call Van City Communities. That's where we gather in homes throughout the cities and we share food and life. And that's where we put what we learn here into practice together together. Every few months, we do that by introducing a new practice or spiritual discipline uh, that is taught and exemplified in the life of Jesus. And then we also alternate between spiritual disciplines and principles of emotional health that enable us to mature as we grow together. So we spend a few weeks teaching on each new practice, then we scatter out into smaller communities using a guided curriculum to actually give that practice a shot. Because it's one thing to sort of sit and listen and to talk Uh, about being a black belt, but it's quite another thing to actually try to set out to become a black belt yourself. If you call yourself an apprentice of a master, at some point you're going to have to stand up and get to work and practice. Now, all of that to say, this week we're beginning a new practice together, and some practices that we've done along the way have been about rhythmic discipline. You know, there's been learning the various methods of reading the scriptures every single day or the many different genres of prayer or even the one we just did, which was fasting, but other disciplines are kind of beyond your control, at least in terms of how and when you do them. They are about responding to something that happens beyond your rhythmic day to day. So, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. In June of 2015, a then unknown but now infamous white supremacist, Dylan Roof, walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Carolina, and he opened fire on a small Bible study, killing nine congregation members, all of whom were black. And many months later, at Roof's sentencing hearing, the victim's families were allowed to confront Roof, the young man who had murdered their loved ones. And one of them, during that hearing, said these words, and I quote, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you and may God have mercy on you. Another said, and I quote, we have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. Still another said to the killer, and I quote, if at any point before you are sentenced and you're in prison and you want me to come and pray with you, I will do that. Why? Why do that? Why should these disciples of Jesus forgive this man? Nothing in their immediate, tangible circumstances will change as a result of forgiving him. The murderer goes on facing his legal consequences and they go on without their family members. So, why forgive? Because these were disciples of Jesus. Responding to the deaths of fellow disciples of Jesus. Their master, their teacher, their Lord taught his disciples that they are to be a people marked by their willingness to forgive in any and all circumstances. So let's look at one such example of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 7. Are you guys there? You ready? Let's read beginning in verse 36, Luke 7 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, pause for a moment. If you know the New Testament, you recognize this term Pharisee. It's a term that describes a religious leader of Jesus' day. In the four biographies of Jesus' life, what we call the gospel, Jesus is depicted as having something of a tense, at times, outright hostile relationship with most of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, to Jesus' estimation anyway, have become so consumed with the very letter of the law, as it were, that they've lost all vision for God's heart, In other words, the Pharisees are sort of your classic type one, rule keeping, holier than thou, fundamentalist crowd. And Jesus is really frustrating to them because he teaches as one who has authority in and of himself, he makes outrageously bold, seemingly blasphemous claims about his authority and he consistently undermines or outright rejects the Pharisee's simplistic black and white approach to the Old Testament. All that to say, this is a really interesting dinner party. Indeed, we aren't given a ton in the way of a setup, but it stands to reason that this particular Pharisee is named Simon. He's at least not entirely opposed to Jesus because he invites him over. He may have been been one among his own group prepared to give Jesus a fair shake to hear him out. Maybe he was just curious. Jesus, after all, was a Jewish rabbi, so he was interested in what he had to say. Whatever the case, here they are together. Jesus is reclining at the table. (laughs) Cue the odd couple theme, you know. You guys know the odd couple theme, Mike? It's great. Look it up. What's wrong with y'all? Classic sitcom, odd couple. Get to it, man. Um, The Bible's more important, so let's go back to that. Read on verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So now things are getting weird, right? Now we have a contrast. There's this religious leader and this woman who's identified only as someone who, quote, lived a sinful life. Jeez, that's a bummer. So if you're wondering how this this is actually accomplished in the practical sense, you have to understand that in our modern Western sense of privacy simply did not exist in the first century. So on a society-wide level, there was something of an open-door policy, meaning it it would not have been at all unusual for neighbors or friends or even strangers or beggars to just wander into someone's house. And so in steps this woman. She heard Jesus was there, so she just walks right in. Verse 38. As she stood behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So this woman has a reputation. We see from the text her quote unquote sinful life is a matter of public knowledge and Simon the Pharisee seems not only disgusted with her but now he's disgusted with Jesus' willingness to have her just carry on this way and not stop it. So what does Jesus have to say about this? Verse 40, Jesus answered him, the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to tell you. (laughs) Tell me, teacher, he said. Verse 41, two people, Jesus just launches into a parable just like that. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house the extraordinary nature of this woman's gesture. We now know that though she had lived a sinful life, she was now leaving or had already left that life behind. She walks right into the home of someone she has every reason to suspect will condemn her and was right, just to be close to this magnetic new teacher with such incredible authority and wonderful compassion and generous kindness. And what we think is happening here is that this woman intended to just walk into the house and anoint Jesus' feet, which is not a totally unusual gesture of humble kindness in the first century. But when she actually gets in front of Jesus, when she actually kneels down before him, she becomes overcome and she starts to weep on his feet. So now she's sort of causing a scene and it gets worse. She lets her hair down, which is something that would have been understood as a shameful thing in her context, not just for her, but for those who have to watch it. And she begins to wipe the tears away from Jesus' dirt caked feet so that she can do what she actually came to do in the first place, which was just to anoint him with perfume. It is easily one of the most intimate and beautiful scenes depicted in the entire Bible. And what Jesus says of the scene gives us a bit more insight into what's actually taken place. This woman is compelled by the incredible love that she has seen in Jesus. And Jesus begins to boldly contrast the lack of basic first century Jewish etiquette offered from his host, you know, when he talks about, you didn't anoint my head with oil and you didn't give me a kiss, all that stuff. It's just normal, like, hospitality. He contrasts that with the radical, shameless outpouring of affection on display in this humbled, weeping woman. He is elevating the shamed person to the place of honor And the seemingly honorable person is being brought down to the place of shame. This is God's value system on display. And what comes next is incredible. Look down at verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now in Greek, that word translated as peace is irene, and it means much more than a kind of farewell like peace, or, or a simple kind of state of contentment. This kind of peace can be translated as God's gift of wholeness. It means a sense of fullness and of rest. And notice that connection, forgiveness And peace, forgiveness, and God's sense of wholeness. Remember that this woman was living beneath the heavy burden of shame. Everyone knew about her. She had a reputation, a life of sin. And Jesus swallows up that shame in forgiveness and gives to her instead peace. Now, it stands to reason that forgiveness is not exactly a new concept for any of us. It's both a term and a, an idea that appears frequently from Genesis to Revelation. If you know anything about the Bible, it cameos in many of Jesus' teachings and his parables. The problem is, I think, that forgiveness is so familiar a concept that it's often a challenge to pin down exactly what it means. So let's do a brief, broad overview for tonight, and we'll unpack these concepts more in the week, weeks and the practices to come. You guys still with me? Great. Thank you. Since you guys are already aware of my contrarian nature, let's try to get at what forgiveness is by clearing up what forgiveness is not. Um, And the first one is really simple. Forgiveness is not forgetting, contrary to the old idiom. And while the sentiment of, you know, forgive and forget sounds really nice, frankly, it's something of an impossibility. Your brain was wired for memory um, you can't simply select memories and erase them as if, as if you were living in an episode of Black Mirror. So forgetting is not built into the idea of forgiveness. In fact, many times you just simply can't help it and that's the way it is. Secondly, forgiveness is not a feeling. And this clarification is connected to the first in that what you feel is often beyond your control. Uh, Abby and I had this great marriage counselor who used to remind us again and again, You control what you do about your thinking and feeling. Meaning, you often can't control what you think or what you feel, but you can control what you do about those things. And in the same way that you can't erase memories, there will be times when your own sense of frustration or woundedness is not erased by the act of forgiveness. At least not in the immediate sense. Sometimes that can come over time. And that's because forgiveness is not a feeling. Next, Forgiveness is not condoning. Um, There are times when you will forgive someone else as you come to understand what was a perceived offense is actually more of a misunderstanding that happens. But then there are times when other people will simply hurt you, and that's that. They will be careless or cruel or even sinful, and you will suffer the consequences. And to forgive is not to excuse sinful behavior away, it's not to condone it, it's not pretending that it's okay or that it didn't happen. And obviously, there is complicated work to be done in this type of forgiveness, and we'll get to that as we go. For now, it just stands to uh, say again and again and again that forgiveness is not condoning. Next, forgiveness is not always reconciliation. There are times when forgiveness leads to the restoration of relationships. That's the ideal. It's beautiful, and it does happen. And there are other times when it does not. In fact, there are often situations, I would argue, in which through wisdom and the discernment of yourself and the community of God, it may prove best to sever ties with certain people who have hurt you. And it is possible for to, to forgive them and to move on because forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Now, I do emphasize this idea of wisdom and discernment, not just in and of yourself, but with the community of God because this does not mean that forgiveness can never be accompanied by reconciliation. Often it is. Heck, We are people who were God's enemies, and we were reconciled to God through forgiveness. Our hearts should be for reconciliation, absolutely, but there are times in which what we need are boundaries, and what we need is change and accountability, and again, this is something that we'll explore further as we go on. For now... Those are, I think, a few helpful clarifications to alleviate what I believe are mistaken understandings about what forgiveness is and what it includes. But of course, it all begs the question okay, if it's none of those things, what the heck is forgiveness? Uh, Dr. Gary Bashir, head of the theology department at Western Seminary in Portland, defines forgiveness this way the personal act of releasing someone who has sinned against me from my right to pay them back for their offense. Let me read that again. Forgiveness is the personal act of releasing someone who has sinned against me from my right to pay them back for their offense. Now, there are actually several dimensions to this definition, so let's unpack it a bit further. One element of forgiveness is relinquishing our idea of justice and handing it over to God. I think of Paul's letter to the church in Rome in which he writes this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, uh, listen to me on this one because we need to adjust expectations (laughs) on this idea. Handing justice over to God does not mean that God will go out and get whoever wronged you. (laughs) Um, God has wired the universe for freedom And we often use that freedom to hurt him and to hurt one another, unfortunately. He does not revoke that freedom to validate our sense of justice or even a valid sense of justice, at least not all the time. But, and listen to me, God does work with us and in our brokenness. God does bring good out of evil And all of creation is heading to the renewal of all things. If nothing else, you can take an incredible amount of hope in that truth and draw from that a a sense of strength to lay down your own need for justice as you see it in the immediate here and now sense. So I'm not saying, hey, you know, just let it go and whatever happens is God's way of taking care of it. That's not it. Um, as we'll see, you know, forgiveness is an active and ongoing process, but part of that process is handing over our own felt need to do justice ourselves. So I've got two kids. One of them is four. His name's Beck. The other is one, uh, Isla. And Isla, who is one, like I said, has this charming habit of just walking up to her brother and violently scratching his face for no good reason at all. And she seems quite cute. I don't know why she's doing that. Um, and her brother doesn't care for this. Go figure. Uh, occasionally to the degree that when it happens, he starts to hulk out. You can see him like gritting his teeth and he starts shaking, you know. You won't like me when I'm angry. And um, what I've been trying to teach him is that rather than immediately take a swing at his sister, which is reflexive, instead of doing that, call me over and I will take care of it. And I'm not saying that it isn't wrong. I'm not saying that I'll hit her for him. Um, I'm simply inviting him to give up his reflexive desire to settle the score himself. And really, this should be freeing for him, I hope, over time, because then he doesn't have to worry about how he should get even. He doesn't have to worry about the consequences of what will happen if he tries to get even. He gets to give all of that to Deda, and trust me, I'll take care of it. I think there's something similar that goes on when we decide to forgive. Next, forgiveness is a process. It's not a one-time event. Um, Forgiveness, especially as a response to complicated injury, rarely happens all at once or in a single moment. Uh, It unfolds over time in process, and that process can be really complicated. If we set either ourselves or our offenders up for an expectation of easy and immediate outcomes of forgiveness, we will discourage ourselves and those in need of our forgiveness or those who want our forgiveness when what we hoped would be an instant becomes a journey. Attempting to rush forgiveness can become avoidance, a way to not deal with things at all, an effort to steer away from the painful work of actually processing what's been done, walking through it together with God's people, and growing as a result. It can become an effort to manipulate difficult seasons that we can't actually control. So forgiveness is often a journey. And though it is a journey, it is an ongoing decision, which brings me to my next point. Forgiveness is a fixed decision for good rather than for evil. I think back to that quote I read earlier we have no room for hate, so we must forgive. Forgiveness is often the first instrumental step in taking on the heart of God when you have been wronged. Because when you forgive, you make a decision to seek after your own good, and that's really important. It is in a spiritual and emotional sense. You're doing what's best for you, but you also choose to seek the good of the other person as well. And remember, uh, tonight's text, forgiveness is a peace-releasing act of love. Remember what Jesus said to the woman, go in peace. Probably the most important and meaningful way I can put it is by saying this. This is what God does for you. This is how God demonstrates his love and compassion and kindness. He forgives us. When we do the same thing, you are emulating God. You are being like God. Those are a few dimensions of what forgiveness is not and what forgiveness is. Now, this is not an exhaustive encyclopedia of forgiveness. We'll obviously unpack the idea more in the next couple of weeks, but those are some broad paradigms in which we will operate in the weeks to come. And any way you slice it, I think we just need to say from the outset that forgiveness is often really, really difficult. It is It can be tremendously challenging. Think back to the story that began tonight's teaching. Families packed into a courtroom, weeping before the young man who slaughtered their family members based entirely entirely on the color of their skin, and following in the example of Jesus, their king, they chose to speak forgiveness over him. No, they don't forget that it happened, absolutely not. I doubt many of them felt like forgiving in the moment, but they followed in Jesus' example. And in the story of the Bible, uh, forgiveness is about much more than following in the example of Jesus. It's about more than just simple obedience. There is a tremendous amount at stake in our willingness to forgive or else linger in unforgiveness. Let's look back at a text from recent memory that we went through in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The contrast of God's willingness to forgive us against our willingness to forgive other people is an intentional one. Jesus is deliberately highlighting the unfathomable amount of forgiving that God readily offers in order to remind his disciples that there must be no limit to which we are prepared to forgive one another. People, in this context, includes everyone, and forgiveness here includes for everything. Some forgiveness comes easier than others. You know, the sarcastic quip from your coworker or the short temper of someone in your community requires less emotional strength to forgive than, say, an abusive parent or an unfaithful spouse. And Jesus, of all people, understands that completely. This is precisely why people, in Jesus' context, includes everyone, and forgiveness includes for everything. So we see, man, how seriously Jesus takes forgiveness. And you don't have to you know, be a, a scholar or a theologian to deduce why. If anyone in all of universal history is qualified to talk about the cost of forgiveness, it would be Jesus of Nazareth. This is, after all, what God has done for you and I. And Jesus' entire premise of being spiritually formed is to become like God himself. I think of his words in the Sermon on the, on, the, on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or in other words, be complete, be whole, be mature, just as your Father is whole and complete and mature. And when we linger in unforgiveness, we create complex roadblocks that keep us from intimacy with God's Spirit, We stunt our own maturity, keep ourselves from growing. We force ourselves backward along the road of discipleship, and we corrupt people around us as well. I think of this haunting text in Hebrews. It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Pay attention to that wording, you know, when we fail in emulating God's grace, his graciousness, his forgiveness, we allow bitterness to grow like a defiling weed, and it can poison more than just you and your injurer, it can defile many. Because when you, as a disciple of Jesus and as a child of God, refuse to forgive, you behave as someone who has little concern for their own story, little concern for their teacher, their Lord, little concern for what God has done for you and what he says is true about you. Before we end tonight, Turn in your Bibles one more time to Matthew chapter 18, if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 18. This is a a parable of Jesus that we'll unpack in detail eventually when we get there in the gospel of Matthew, you know, 10 years from now or whenever. Um, Tonight, I just want to read it at face value over you guys. Matthew chapter 18. You guys there? Levi, you there? You just reading it out of your coffee mug? I called him out because he doesn't have a Bible in his hand, but it's totally fine. He's a seminary student, so he's probably memorized the whole thing by now, right? In fact, you don't want to just recite it? To us. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, Matthew 18. Uh, let's read beginning at verse 21. Thank you for being a good sport, Levi. <laughs> That's good. That was really good comedic timing. Yeah, that was great. Take a moment, and let that sink in. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? (laughs) Oh man, Peter's just really shooting for the stars there. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, But 77 times, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. (laughs) Once again, Jesus just launches into a parable. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now listen again, because I know that's pretty heavy. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the time to go into this text with exact detail, and we will a bit down the road, but I want us to see and understand something before we set out to do this work and this practice together. God as the great source of forgiveness, takes forgiveness very seriously. And please listen, because God is after your best. Unforgiveness will destroy you. It will corrupt you. It will make you small. It will corrupt the people around you. It will hold you back. It will wring you out. And if all of that sounds dramatic, I mean, just look how seriously Jesus takes forgiveness. We have these well-worn platitudes that actually put the idea of forgiveness quite well. Uh, Things like this one, forgiveness is setting someone free only to realize that someone is you. And uh, another great one, unforgiveness is like drinking poison in an effort to make someone else sick. And un- unforgiveness is this sinister sort of parasite. It can be a ravenous monster that makes quick work of tearing you down or it can be a small, coiled creature nestled deep inside, eating away at you slowly over time without you realizing it. So on our journey of apprenticeship, disciples of Jesus learned to actively seek out latent or blatant unforgiveness and purge it, tear it up by the root, destroy it in the fire of God's gracious love and again forgiveness is rarely done all at once rarely done in a single effort it often takes time it often takes thoughtful meditation and ongoing work and I know enough of you guys to know that for some here there are obvious areas of woundedness and need of forgiving work ongoing forgiving work for others there may not be an immediate trauma to which your mind gravitates but perhaps there are smaller injuries unaddressed and they are at risk of infection. So this is a a kind of work we desperately need to learn and to practice and then to practice again and again and again. This week when you gather with your community, you'll head to practicingtheway.org and you'll begin some basic work of thinking through and asking the Spirit about circumstances and relationships in which you need to practice forgiveness. If you're not yet in a community or you're listening to this online, feel free to grab some friends and give it a shot. Because forgiveness is is more than just uh, a kind of resource that you store in your spiritual tool belt, so to speak. It must become, for disciples of Jesus, a lifestyle. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was a man resolved to confront his enemies with the nonviolent love of Jesus. And when a person confronts evil and hatred without weapons and without violent self-defense, they set out to absorb evil into themselves just like Jesus, and by doing so, they snuff it out. They put it to an end. But imagine the emotional and the physical and the mental and spiritual toll of such an effort, especially on an ongoing basis. So in response, Dr. King encouraged those within the movement he led to arm themselves with forgiveness, saying this, Forgiveness is not an occasional act, it is a constant attitude. I believe this is crucial for you and I as we navigate a firestorm of cultural hostility. All of us are at least exposed to, if not outright caught up in, a firestorm of socio-political vitriol all the time a news cycle designed to widen the furious chasm between the right and the left, fury over politicians and celebrities and policies and tweets, ongoing racism and sexism and xenophobia and sex scandals. And we, as the people of God, must learn, as Dr. King put so well, what it means to have forgiveness as a constant attitude. And we do not condition our forgiveness on the actions of other people but on the teaching of our master Jesus. You understand that we do not condition our forgiveness on the actions of others. We do this because this is what Jesus taught us to do. You may not be able to fully reconcile yourself to a person who won't have it. You may not be able to work things out for the relationship. You may not be able to restore peace in the pragmatic sense. But the only person who can stop you from forgiving is you. And what we're learning as disciples of Jesus who live in community with one another is that forgiving a hateful, hostile, hurtful world is difficult to be sure, but we are hurting one another inside the church. (laughs) Communities are built up on forgiveness or else they are torn down by unforgiveness. And I can tell you this from experience. It's actually that simple. Communities rise and fall with forgiveness or lack thereof. All of you in communities know that well enough, and even if you're not like in a van city communities, everyone who lives in relationships with other people know this well enough. You will wrong one another in ways big and small. When you forgive those wrongs, you build the community of God up. You reinforce it. You make it stronger. You give it strength and stamina. You walk with your brothers and sisters down the road of mature spiritual formation or, when you withhold forgiveness from your community, your community, you set before it a solid wall through which it cannot and will not pass. You sentence it to death. you deprive it the sustenance of God's spirit. And at Van City, we go on and on about this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. And if that last word "together" means anything to us, then it will rise and fall on our ability and willingness to forgive one another and to do it again and again, and again. So as we go forward in this practice, may God's Spirit empower us to be like God. He forgives well, so let us go and learn to do likewise.